0: Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. A few months ago, we discussed the diagnosis and medical management of REM sleep behavior disorder. Part of the overall management of this disorder also includes disclosure of potential neurodegenerative sequelae. While prescribing medications can be fairly straightforward, the discussion of a potentially life-altering diagnosis is more nuanced. It requires not only the explanation of Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's, but also the ability to assess what a patient needs to hear and when it is appropriate to disclose this information. Dr. Alon Avedon is here to help guide this discussion. Dr. Avedon is a professor of neurology at UCLA. He was recently awarded and served as visiting professor of neurology education in the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He also received the 2014 AASM Excellence in Education Award for Career Contributions to Education in Sleep Medicine. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Nice to be here, Sima, and a pleasure to uh be uh, invited to talk about this very, very interesting and important topic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great lead. And so so let's start just by, by briefly reviewing RBD, kind of the diagnosis. What do we mean by
1: this? Sure. So RBD, we all know, is an acronym for Rapid Eye Movement REM Sleep Behavior Disorder. It's a distinct parasomnia that occurs during rapid eye movement sleep, during REM sleep. Um, it's defined by having a history of recurrent uh, dream enactment behaviors, and those could include verbalization to um, enacting one one's dreams, and also having a polysomnography uh, confirmation of the loss of muscle tone during a REM sleep in either the chin or or the limbs um, that are being subsequently uh, evaluated as the patient is is uh, acting out their dreams. It's very important, it's very, very important parasomnia because it's the only one that requires polysomnographic confirmation.
0: Mm. And there's more to it, right? I like how you mentioned both there's a clinical piece as well as a polysomnographic findings.
1: Exactly. And we have additional um, classifications that say, for example, clinically probable RBD is uh, synonymous with recurrent dream enactment behaviors, where you don't have a polysomnogram uh, mm. confirmation. And subclinical RBD is when you have REM without atonia or RASWA, but you don't have dream enactment. And we both, uh, everyone is seeing patients who have um, abnormal EMG findings on their polysomogram. And likewise, patients who have dream enactment whose polysomogram is negative right. for REM without atonia.
0: So let's talk about the management and prognosis. And I would love to touch a little bit on phenoconversion as
1: well. Sure. So the management of REM behavior disorder is actually summarized in the recent uh, practice guidelines from the ASM, my, cow, my colleague and other colleagues have worked on this uh, paper um, over the last uh, several years. And it's uh, it's been published in the Clinical Journal of Sleep Medicine, volume 16, um, uh, just uh, uh, recently. And this is uh, based on the Uh, management is really based on whether the patient has isolated RBD and versus uh, secondary RBD. Now, everyone is familiar with isolated or idiopathic RBD. And idiopathic RBD um, is probably a misnomer because we all know that this patient, say, uh, on to develop a neurologic condition. Mm -hmm. So idiopathic May not be the most appropriate term. Hence, we describe as patients having isolated RBD, meaning RBD without any neurologic um, findings, and secondary RBD implies that the patient has already developed a neurologic condition, one of the three alpha synucleinopathies, or may have a structural brain lesion, such as a multiple sclerosis lesion or um, a neoplasm that affects the REM-generating centers in a brain, and hence uh, the condition is secondary. Secondary also includes a antidepressants and potentially beta blockers. Now, the way that we manage RBD is, uh, first and foremost, is to promote safety, mm-hmm. uh, removing of firearms from the house, from the bedroom environment, um, to initiating treatment based on the following criteria that is how frequent and how severe the episodes are so for example if a patient has a few episodes per week where they're just verbalizing and having um uh, uh, a dream enactment in a way of shouting or or mild uh talking and it's not really leading to any potential sleep disruption for the patient or the bed partner, we may just observe them. Mm-hmm. But if the patient has episodes that can potentially lead to injury or are, have already uh, led to injury, then um, the uh, conditional recommendations by the ASM practice guidelines recommend that for isolated RBD, we proceed with clonazepam or melatonin uh, or permapixel Um, where there is information um, uh, on an additional drug besides clonazepam and melatonin for secondary RBD, and that involves rivastigmine, and there is a conditional uh, recommendation against deep brain stimulation. Now, for drug-induced RBD, that is a patient who is experiencing RBD in a setting of a serotonergic antidepressant, the recommendation is for drug discontinuation.
0: So you're right. Dr. Howell was kind enough to discuss some of these um, with us, and I think one of the um, one of the things that always comes up is this idea of how do you figure out who is at higher risk for this neurodegenerative sequela, and who is, you know, at, at lower risk? How do we how do we figure that out?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a, the million dollar question. So <laughs> and it's about um how do we tell who is at greater greater risk, right?
0: That's exactly it. So tell me about you know, phenoconversion, you know, what what do you mean by that and what do we know about the rates of phenoconversion?
1: Absolutely. Phenoconversion is a term that we use to describe a process of evolution from a healthy phenotype into a phenotype that has a certain condition. When we use the term phenoconversion in RBD, we're implying that the patient has transformed from having isolated RBD into RBD in the setting of a neurologic condition. Mm. Mm-hmm. For people with RBD, um, the phenoconversion rate is about 6% per year. Now, that is Um, a general uh, uh, risk, and it's uh, encompassing all age groups. But when you you really dissect this data, it becomes even more perplexing. There is a recent uh, unpublished results from uh, the Mayo Clinic. Uh, The um, investigator is Eric St. Louis, and uh, his unpublished data demonstrates something very interesting that tends to, that highlights that there is marked uh, stratification of risk based on age of RBD diagnosis or onset. Huh. Meaning okay. that if you look at patients who are less than fifty years of age, uh, it may actually be a separate group altogether in that the risk is is rather low. But once you go into people between 50 to 60 years old, there is a 2% risk per year. For people between age 60 to 70, there is Mm -hmm. about 4% risk of phenoconversion per year. And the risk goes up to 6% for patients over age 70.
0: Okay. So does that, you you kind of hinted that we might be talking about two different things. And so, what I'm what I'm kind of wondering is, is there also, you know, a third? Is there? You know, how do you tell the difference? So, for example, I'm thinking about isolated RBD and maybe trauma related RBD, and do they all carry the same risk?
1: Probably not, because mm-hmm. the patients that are categorized under the trauma related RBD probably also receive antidepressants. They probably also have. Uh, mix in their diagnosis, say PTSD, Mm. and the rates that are specific for the RBD group probably do not follow the same phenoconversion process. And so this is a very, very complex group of patients, firstly because it includes a fairly wide uh, uh, spectrum of other conditions that are not all RBD, Mm. and because the RBD diagnosis has to include uh, a sleep study has to include clinical confirmation of dream enactment. Um, p- patients who have PTSD and trauma may have a antidepressants on board, mm. may be younger, may have RBD that is comorbid with a uh, depression. So these patients are are probably we we they're almost like a separate phenotype where the conversion rates are still not clearly elucidated.
0: So, that this is something I've kind of been curious about, is that um, when we're trying to apply this data to women or younger people, I mean, can we do that? Isn't most of the original data primarily on men?
1: Yeah, so um, it's absolutely correct that uh, the initial data, particularly from the Minnesota group and from uh, the Canadian group by Ron Postuma and Montplaisere, are uh, in older adults who um, tend to have a, uh, more men than women. There is a 9-to-1 predilection of RBD in older age, whereas the risk um, in younger patients uh, demonstrates there is an equal Uh, Mm. male-to-female ratio.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Okay.
1: And it's probably because of the antidepressants, and it's probably because uh, there are other uh, potential issues related to how um, antidepressants impact the brainstem in areas that control muscle tone and uh, movement during sleep. So um, we know that uh, women... um, and when you stratify, when you um, control for for gender, that the risks are still fairly low. Um, if RBD presents in patients less than fifty years old, they still need to be followed cl- clinically to look for any evolving neurologic. A- Conditions or memory or cognitive disturbances. But as uh both men and women, as mm-hmm. you go as you grow older, the risk is um doubling every decade, 2% oh, wow. for 50 to 60, 4% to 60 to 70, and 6% over age 70.
0: So is there a difference in like serotonergic receptors between genders?
1: Maybe, maybe. So um, earlier, I, I was going through the data, and it's a potentially there is a an impact on um, how serotonin impacts the brainstem, um, and this may involve a embryologic changes to that are very much as, uh, sex steroid dependent, mm-hmm. and perhaps the gender difference between RBD early and late. Uh, age, may have to do with uh, the serotonergic expression at the level of brains of the brainstem, uh, but that's not entirely proven. It's just a hypothesis. The other point is that the uh, explanation of the gender uh, discrepancy in a younger women compared to um, when you look at the older age group is that um, it may be that women may not present with a as many disturbed dreams, or the dreams are not uh, re- uh, leading to injury. And maybe in man it's just um, earlier uh, onsets is uh, related to the fact that maybe the dreams are more likely to include an injury. Mm. That's been also hypothesized, but it's not clear. Uh, and i <laughs> and that's still a mystery that needs to be <laughs> resolved.
0: <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the ethical Considerations around RBD.
1: Yes, that's that's a the million. That's the two million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> so the first and foremost, we have to um, be mindful that uh, we use the ethical principles of autonomy, informed consent, respect for a person supporting the disclosure of information to. Uh, to the patients and uh, by uh, the best principles really relate to beneficence, which Mm. is clinicians should act in the best interest of patients. Uh, So disclosure of RBD will provide patients with information to prepare for the future and consider possible risk reduction strategies, although none are currently available um, specific for neurodegeneration. So beneficence here is is you're trying to act in the best interests of patients, but the disclosure doesn't provide an actionable uh, pathway for the patient to proceed with treatment that may change the natural history of the condition. Mm. So that's that's a dilemma. Non-maleficence is another term that we use in the best principles for uh, ethics in in managing our patients. It requires that clinicians should do no harm. And disclosing the risk of future disease may lead to unintended anxiety, hopelessness. Um, The patient may feel depressed Mm. when disease-modifying treatments are not available. So um, in the case of RBD... Um, beneficence and non-maleficence are at odds with each other. Mm. Yet, I think we we also have to find uh, what's in the best interest of the patient, uh, based on the third principle, which is autonomy, meaning mm-hmm. that it provide the the uh, criteria here is to provide the patients the right for self determination, and that includes the right to know. And prepare about, um, to know something about RBD and also to prepare for the potential risks that the condition uh, signals. The patient, after all, uh, is an owner of the medical information, right. and we, we disclose this in our medical chart. But autonomy, in most cases, also includes the right not to know about the condition, that particularly that a condition that's not actionable.
0: So how do you introduce this, right? You, you know, you mentioned open records and, you know, Google exists. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, do, do patients already know? You know, I feel like by the time they come in, they've already, you know, Googled or a family member has Googled. So how do you introduce this into the conversation with your patients?
1: Ah, so that's where it takes a little bit more about knowing the patients. And I think the idea of autonomy is, extends even further in that we practice informed consent,
0: mm-hmm.
1: meaning that we make sure that the patient receives adequate information to be able to make a medical decision about the information that is presented to them. So I start by having a session with my patients I make sure I have a full hour. I will never schedule this for 15 or 20 minutes because I don't want to cut the patient short. And I don't want to be uh, rushing the patients through if there are questions, particularly from family members or loved ones who may be joining the, the visit. So I make sure that I... Uh, educate the patients about what RBD is. I tell the patients that RBD carries a risk for a neurologic condition. The patient may have already read about this, and interestingly, a lot of data shows that two thirds, over two thirds of patients before they come to see you, may already know something about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, the next step is once you introduce the um, the, the condition and you tell the patients that this condition carries a neurologic condition. Then the next step is to ask the patient quite um, uh, in in an empathetic way that if since there is a potential neurologic uh, condition that is uh, um, uh, prognosticate we are able to prognosticate based on this condition would they want me to disclose this neurologic uh, 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 change that may come on and interestingly most patients do want to know Um, Mm. although over the years we have all seen patients who uh, tell us that they would rather not know so Mm. those Mm -hmm. tend to be few but there are patients when they're asked very directly would you like to know about a future relationship between uh, RBD and a neurologic condition? And if the answer is no, you move on and you move into management, but you may not want to overwhelm the patient with all this, uh, phenoconversion data. If the answer is yes, then you try to as empathetically and compassionately display some of the data I generally quote numbers depending on the age group that I just mentioned from the study from the unpublished study from Mayo Clinic, demonstrating that um, at early age it's really difficult to tell, but we do know that after age uh, 60, the rates are about 6% per year. I generally um, provide a fairly open day, um, demonstration of of, uh, the numbers, and um, we know that between 50 to 80% of patients may phenoconvert within uh, a period of 10 years. And the way I present it is there is a 50 to 30% chance that nothing will happen, Mm -hmm. that you will not phenoconvert. So show them the glass half full rather Mm -hmm. than showing them the data and, and maybe uh, worry them that in two, in two years, three years, they may develop something uh, that will uh, uh, impact their performance and quality of life. And even though um, patients may develop Parkinson's disease, I tell them that we, we have very effective medications to control symptoms, improve quality of life, That may not be the same case with uh, dementia with Lewy bodies. But certainly, if the question is about Parkinson's, I I try to be as supportive and telling them that I will follow them. And they're here with us. This is a, a partnership. This is a journey that we will take together to make sure that they know, they can always check in with me if they develop a neurologic change, if they notice that their hand signature is changing Mm -hmm. If they notice that there are other evolving symptoms, and I want to just touch base on the fact that uh, based on new data from Ron Paschima and from the uh, North American uh, epidermal synucleinopathy study, that uh, uh, we understand that phenoconversion risks include anosmia, that is a change in smell, change in color vision, autonomic dysfunction, particularly nocturia orthostatic hypertension. Uh, so those parameters would be very important to follow. And since the patient knows that they have a, a, a person to turn to anytime they experience a neurologic change, I think it's, it's an open opportunity for us to get in touch <laughs> with them and to just validate and maybe give them comfort and uh, let them know that uh, where they might be standing. One thing I would like to mention, SEMA is the disclosure, the discussion of disclosure and phenoconversion also carries a very important um, uh, point on telling the patient that since there is a potential risk for a neurologic condition down the road, that if they plan to take an adventurous trip to uh, Kruger National Park in South Africa, or the mm. Galapagos, or and you know, a trip that requires a little bit of a physical uh, um, mm. uh, a well-being that uh, they may want to do that take that trip early. And we've had patients who followed this recommendation and took the trip, and uh, rather than wait and um, uh, uh, essentially uh, not be able to. Uh, Planned this uh, grand trip because they they now have a neurologic condition that makes it more difficult.
0: That's a good point. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about the ethics of disclosure in RBD. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine.
1: Join us September 22nd through the 24th for the Virtual Sleep Medicine Essentials 2023. This course will help you prepare for the Sleep Medicine Board and MOC exam. Or refresh your sleep knowledge attendees can also register for the on-demand intensive scoring review add-on course on september 21st learn more at aasm.org forward slash events
0: welcome back to talking sleep we're talking with dr alon Avidan about the ethics of disclosure in rbd so we kind of talked about something earlier about how to prognosticate. And so and so I'm going to push back a little bit. Um you know, you kind of mentioned the different phenotypes of of RBD and what I'm wondering is is there some sort of formula or predictive clinical situation or polysomnographic signs? I mean, is there some sort of cheat sheet <laughs> that we can use <laughs> to figure out, you know, who is at higher risk?
1: Yeah, that, that's a very important question. So patients often ask me, uh, well, should I be looking for anything? Right. Uh, or be able to follow and and let you know if something happens and and uh, potentially then they know that maybe the risk has increased. And I do want to r- remind folks that right now the um Unfortunately, there is no formula like the stop band questionnaire <laughs> that gives you a nice uh, formula where you can plug BMI and HI or plug uh, clinical symptoms and come up with a mild, moderate, or severe risk. We hope that through the efforts of the North American Podromal Synucleinopathy Consortium, the NAPS consortium, and I'm, by the way, I want everyone to know that you can Google NAPS uh, and NAPS RBD, and you'll find the link to the NAPS consortium. But this is a study funded in originally in two thousand eighteen uh, by the National Institute of Health and the National Institute of Aging, and it's uh, specifically to determine, um, based on a um, patients who uh, originally enrolled. Uh, The enrollment included patients with isolated RBD without neurologic conditions, and we're following these patients uh, prospectively. And when you look at the baseline characteristics of these patients, it does pan out that certain attributes that relate to um, changes in uh, color vision, mild motor dysfunction, um, changes in color vision, and autonomic dysfunction are predictive that the patient may be on the on their way to develop an alpha-synoclinopathy. synucleinopathy. is no specific formula, but I think that um, we are getting closer to understanding more about the longitudinal uh, risk and perhaps get a little bit more precision about other specific uh, neurologic conditions, including constipation, including uh, MOCA scores for neurocognitive changes, and the imaging studies, very importantly, looking at dopamine uh, SPECT scans, mm-hmm. where you can actually measure the change in a dopamine a, uh, receptors in the basal ganglia, to actually also including um, brain-derived exosome data from the blood to, that are markers of uh, changes in the uh, neurofilament integrity, and perhaps those changes can can tell us something about. Well, um, if if you notice that a patient has undergone these changes, that it's important to then be more attentive to their uh, progression but also um, using this uh, objectively verifiable indicators that is looking at CSF and blood uh, markers of a uh, phenoconversion to also track um, management yeah. because we don't want to wait uh, multiple years to see an improvement. We want to be able to track progression uh, using a more predictable uh, laboratory marker and. Um, I think that over the next couple of years, we'll have a little bit more data to be able to give that additional precision that you are alluding to, Sima. But <laughs> so right is- now, I wish I could give people numbers, but <laughs> I think we, we're a bit, uh, maybe in a few years, we'll have a few, a few numbers and a formula.
0: Is that a blood test you could order now for the axioms?
1: Yeah, the exosome data is is a blood test that's available through research uh, protocols only.
0: Okay.
1: Um, although I do want to mention that there is a alpha synuclein uh, neuro- it's actually a, um, a blood test looking at the deposition position of alpha synuclein in the in the skin and that's available through um, that's available commercially in patients often uh, present with all kinds of blood tests that they have done outside. And it's huh. sometimes difficult to integrate uh, in in using those to validate and tell patients about their potential risk. But we Okay, so are, hang on,
0: hang on, hang on. So just so I understand, you're talking about a skin biopsy?
1: Yes, it's a skin biopsy that's available commercially. Huh. Um, the skin biopsy is is looking for the position of a alpha-synuclein, which is a uh, an abnormal protein uh, misfolding of a, uh, the alpha-synuclein, and it's it's looking for uh, those changes in in the skin. And right now, there are some interesting data coming from the um, the, the uh, sponsors of this uh, skin biopsy test that predict a certain a risk, but. We haven't been able to use that, say, directly in mm-hmm. our isolated RBD cohort to tell them that there is. We can use the say skin biopsy to say anything with more accuracy about the finoc version risk, unfortunately.
0: But that's so fascinating that you could even consider doing that.
1: It is, and it's it's the um, imagine that um, you you could actually tell patients well, it looks like um, even though you notice that' you're, you're getting more forgetful, you know we don't have any, any additional predictives that something is is actually happening in the brain because with the pandemic it's it's been very difficult to really uh, score some of the neurologic changes that patients were reporting because there was more more, more isolation. There was more uh, stress, mm-hmm. more anxiety, more depression. So mm-hmm. uh, in in the absence of a additional uh, uh, objective markers, it became a bit difficult to tell patients with accuracy if what they were reporting were meaning, clinically meaningful. So I think with the additional data that you can actually measure changes in the blood, changes in the skin biopsy, that we might be able to add more uh uh, objective verifiable indicators to uh, that may allow us to be more predictive with higher precision on the phenoconversion risk.
0: So just more more data right to kind of guide that conversation that we have exactly. with our patients. So exactly. is the conversation that you have with somebody in their 80s different than the conversation you have with somebody in their 40s? I mean, you you mentioned earlier that the, the phenoconversion risk is lower when they present younger. Um, But there's also a significant delay between, you know, symptom onset and diagnosis.
1: That's such an important question, Seema, because besides having uh, a patient who presents with a RBD, we have all seen patients who have a REM without atonia on the polysomnogram. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes really challenging. What what do you tell patients when um, all you have is a abnormal muscle tone? on on the polysomnogram, should you mention it? Should you scare patients that Mm. they may experience this uh, uh, dreadful, in their opinion, and uh, dreadful uh, parasomnia that harbors a risk? But I I often, uh, again, I I bring the issue of autonomy, and I present this data, and um, I wouldn't necessarily withhold information from an 80-year-old, because I've had 80-year-olds who also went on Google and, and <laughs> asked me about the RVD and sure, were very yeah. interested and curious. <clears throat> At the same time, I've had a very anxious 30- uh, and 40-year-olds who found that they have a REM without a Tony on the polysomnogram and they Googled that and were very, very uh um, Uneasy and and yes. worried, so I think you we have to know our patients. We have to maybe introduce this notion that um, we um, first of all, we we have to make make sure the patients has the right to their clinical condition and will read about this information. So not telling them anything also carries a risk that uh, may uh, the patient may follow you in a, in clinic and say, well, I just read about RBD and you didn't mention it last time. And, you know, now I, I don't know if I can trust coming back because you're not telling me everything I want to know.
0: No, that's exactly it. Yeah. (laughs) So I imagine too, that there are, you know, maybe cultural differences in, in somebody's receptiveness to receiving this information. So have you come across that?
1: Yes, and, and absolutely. So there are like, religious differences, there are cultural differences, family dynamics plays a huge role in a, uh, the f- families of a, uh, certain individuals in certain ethnic groups may, may want to withhold information and not worry the patient. So I think um, we all have to be careful, we have to be uh, mindful and, and diligent but we don't want to use ethnic or religious backgrounds and not to report and and use that as a basis to uh, withhold or um, prevent the discussion of a phenoconversion risk just because we are we have a perception that the patient may uh, may uh, react to this information differently because because there is a risk of bias if you. If you uh, make your own prediction mm-hmm. on the cultural and religious uh, background of the patient, so I think that um, uh, too much information sometimes can be overwhelming. I think for the eighty-year-old patient that you mentioned, um, I would I would also want to be sure that the patient uh, doesn't have a history of depression, doesn't have. An underlying comorbidity that may impact their um, their uh, 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 the rates of a potentially if they have a a serious uh, malignancy that mm-hmm. in five or ten years they may not be alive. So I would uh, at that, at this point I would just be careful to when introducing and sharing this information that the patient is open and receptive to the. Potential risk that RBD may have. And I would be more, uh, I would be double, I I will double check that the patient really wants to know this data. But I think for a 30 or 40 year old, the data now shows that uh, um, the rates of phenoconversion are far less than 6% that I've quoted earlier. They're probably less than 1% or 2%. There is also other mitigate, mitigating factors, which relate to, um, well, if a patient has depression and uh, they're on uh, an SSRI that potentially uh, brings and, and promotes the diagnosis of RBD, um, I would say something about it, and I would uh, tell the patient that maybe in the future, if they have, if all they have on the polysomnogram is REM sleep with, without atonia that they report to me anytime they experience dream enactment and anytime they experience new symptoms that relate to loss of sense of smell or constipation or changes in their signature. But definitely we want to be absolutely sure that we keep in touch with the patient, follow their symptoms, and particularly in in this setting of REM without autotonia that we also uh, evaluate and screen the patients for dream enactment behavior.
0: So, do you think this is one of the sleep disorders that um, you know we should send to neurology? I say this as a pulmonologist. <laughs> so, should our patients who we think have RBD be seen by neuro for a thorough neurological evaluation?
1: I, uh, you know, Sima, we we always uh, in sleep medicine uh, we interact um, with multiple specialty uh, specialties and. Uh, The beauty of our um, field is that uh, the ability to collaborate, to see patients uh, together, and uh, since I'm a neurologist, I I often receive uh, uh, messages from my colleagues at at UCLA and outside asking if I could uh, take a look and be sure that uh, the patient uh, truly has RBD and if I can help uh, mitigate the discussion of conversion and uh, give the patient a little bit more, uh, uh, be resourceful to them, given my interest and research uh, interest mm-hmm. in RBD. So I think the idea here is if I see a patient with RBD and the patient discloses that hmm, maybe their memory is not as sharp, or maybe they've noticed that they're forgetting names and they're becoming less, say, efficient at work and there it takes them twice to do the same activity that having the patient undergo a baseline neurocognitive assessment is is a, not a bad idea Mm. And oftentimes the patient is requesting to be ah. seen just to get the baseline exam and to get a baseline MRI imaging if there are changes. So we we have very low threshold for sending our patients to the movement disorder specialist, to the neurocognitive clinic. Just so the patient can get a baseline evaluation, so then we have a basis for comparison. Anytime the patient, in the unlikely event or or if the patient develops, say, neurologic change down the road, we have some basis of comparison. So. Um, the answer. The, the short answer is, absolutely. <laughs> we we love and we enjoy the ability to co- collaborate and see the same patients, so we can be both a uh, resourceful to the patients and to the uh, uh, non neurology colleague.
0: Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Do you have any final thoughts for us?
1: Yes, I uh, uh, I would like to conclude with the following that uh, um, you know one strategy to to. Th- always keep in mind when when we're seeing patients say uh, with a rbd is that uh, yesterday is a history uh tomorrow is a mystery but huh. today is an opportunity so the opportunity with rbd is that this is the first time that we have a neuro and a sleep disorder that uh, has a fairly important window of opportunity into the evolution of a neurologic condition, that if we manage the patient in time, if we intervene in time, when we see a patient with isolated RBD, that in the future, we may be able to reverse, if not uh, to delay, if not reverse, the Mm. underlying neurologic condition. And I think this is a very, very critical point because in neurology, the smoking gun is, in, in neurodegenerative conditions such as alpha-synucleinopathies, the smoking gun is RBD. Mm. So if we have the ability to change the natural history, change progression, and intervene in a way to delay progno- the, the uh, conversion down the road, the patients will benefit, and having that neuroprotective agent is is the quest of, every one of us on the NAPS consortium and other RBD uh, study groups that hopefully in the next five to 10 years, we will be able to find a medication Mm. that uh, we will be able to give patients with RBD to change their natural history. So sleep physicians will still be in business and very much in business (laughs) to be able to uh, use this diagnosis to help mitigate risks for uh, future neurologic conditions. And that's the beauty of having a, knowing that RBD has that risk and the potential to really change the natural history of uh, neurologic conditions.
0: But we're not there yet.
1: Uh, A few more years. (laughs) A
0: few more years, oh, you're giving us hope anyway. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us so much more information on not only RBD, but also around the ethics of disclosure.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Seema.
0: Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Khosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.